0: Buddha's teaching on the Anatta characteristic is unique to the Buddha. It's indispensable, and it's extremely subtle. It's the understanding that inclines the mind to the end of suffering. This teaching states that neither the body nor the mind nor any part of them, nor the both of them together, constitutes nor contains an enduring entity, a being within it, which we commonly mistakenly refer to as me. The Buddha said, this wrong view of personality belief or ego belief or identity belief has at all times most misled and deluded humankind. It is this wrong understanding which has most misled and deluded us throughout eternity. And the result of that deluded, misleading belief is that we suffer unnecessarily. When conditions conspire to create a conventional self, a me, that is doing whatever is happening, when I claim it, to be me, or who I am, or my experience, I'm bound to suffer. There's no way not to suffer. Anatta nupassana is the Vipassana insight into the anatta characteristic. It means that we see clearly the impersonal nature of events. Experiences without mistakenly believing them to be me or mine or who I am. For our practice here, it's essential, really, that we hear this teaching on anatta characteristic, that we understand what wrong view is, the wrong view of self, and that we understand what right view is, the right view of the anatta characteristic, because this understanding or these understandings will support our practice so that we can practice effectively to get the benefit from all the effort we're making. and hopefully, to deepen insight so that we are able to, or at least we're headed towards realizing the goal of the Buddha's practice, to disentangle ourselves from unnecessary suffering. So this talk is about the suffering inherent in wrong view, and the peace of mind that comes as a result of insight into the anatta characteristic. But as I begin, it's important that we understand the relationship between our experience, what we believe about our experience, and suffering. The Buddha was primarily, and maybe we could say, exclusively concerned with suffering. How thoughts, spoken words, and actions lead to suffering or lead to the end of suffering. And that was the parameter with which he evaluated most things. His understanding and teaching addresses suffering, gross suffering, subtle suffering, the causes of them, the relief from them, the path to it. And this teaching on anatta is one of the subtle teachings. Because how we understand our experience can lead to suffering or to the end of suffering. Now I mention this because the teaching of anatta is at first glimpse counterintuitive. It doesn't seem to be confirmed by our experience. So it's rather challenging actually to grasp the understanding. And the confirming experience in practice is rather elusive. Take as an example, we all believe that the earth revolves around the sun. But this is not a belief that's derived from our direct personal experience. It seems like when the sun rises in the east, traverses the sky and sets in the west, it seems like the sun is moving around the earth or revolving around the earth. But we have been told by those who have a subtler understanding of what they're actually observing that indeed the earth revolves around the sun. And we've been told this insistently, unwaveringly, Often, it's just confirmed by anyone who's of the voice of authority. And even though we have not seen it ourselves, we believe it. So we have right view about the nature of the Earth's relationship to the sun. Not based on our own perceptions, but rather understood based on a more refined understanding of others. We could understand our belief that the earth is round in the same way. Has anyone ever seen it round? I mean, have anyone in this room ever seen it round? Probably not. And from our personal experience, it looks relatively flat. But we all believe that it's round. Or reasonably round. Because we trust the understanding of others who have a more refined understanding of subtle perception. And so, we believe it. The same changing of belief is required if we are to realize the peace of liberation. Because initially, our experience is interpreted wrongly. We interpret this experience as me, as mine, as who I am. But when we hear the Buddhist teachings that no, that's wrong view. Right view is the understanding that what you experience is not me, not mine, not who I am. Then we can try to apply that. It's not easy because it seems so counterintuitive. It seems like our experience is pointing to just the opposite understanding. Like walking on the round earth, or the sun traveling around the earth. It seems wrong. And so, each of us, as we sit to watch our experience, sees my body, my breath, my thoughts. This is me. Or that's how we interpret what we actually experience. The Buddha said, try this with what you experience. Understand it as not me, not mine, not who I am. A confirming experience, the result, has to be held in abeyance. It comes when we see that our suffering is lessened. That we actually have less suffering from understanding things in this way. And that is not always immediate. So, tonight I want to talk about wrong view, how we apply it to our experience. how that wrong understanding of experience leads to the creation of a sense of self which inevitably suffers. I also would like to show how our mindfulness practice reveals the suffering and deepens our understanding of how to see these experiences in a way that leads to the end of suffering or to the lessening of suffering. First, or one way, that we see wrongly. Our sense of ourself is very tied to our body. We could almost say that my sense of myself is contiguous with the body. It came into being somewhere after the body, and we don't know how to think of me existing after the death of the body. And so it seems like, from all general appearance, that I am my body. My body is a reflection of me, that we are contiguous in time, in space, in experience. What happens to my body happens to me. That's the general understanding, in fact, the wrong understanding, the Buddha would say, that we have. On the gross level, we are quite identified with how the body appears. Color, size, shape, texture. And in this culture, there's a hierarchy of what is valued. Other cultures have other hierarchies. Nevertheless, if we rate high on the hierarchy, we feel good about ourselves we feel good about our body, we feel good about ourself. On an even grosser level, or even subtler level, let's say, we can get identified with how the body's functioning. If we feel energetic, if we feel uh, healthy, if we feel strong, if we um, have a lot of stamina, then we feel better about ourselves. If we feel sick and weak and uh, vulnerable and achy, we don't feel so good about ourselves. At an even subtler level than that, I call it statistical identification. How's your, hey guys, how's your PSA? And how's your cholesterol? And how's your blood pressure? You know, sometimes we can get identified even with the statistics of our body. And all we need is to get a rating, high or low or in the uh, dangerous zone, and we feel like, I'm in trouble. I'm being threatened. I'm the one who's going to have to suffer with this. Not only do we get identified with our own body, we like to identify others with their body. (laughs) Right? How it looks, how it feels, how it appears. And so we have this easy transference of, how you look is who you are. But that is a mistaken belief. Of course, we know it on some level, how we look is who we are. Give me a break. <laughs> Nevertheless, much of our life and some considerable amount of unnecessary suffering is caused by this identification with the body. Primarily, in recognizing that the body is so vulnerable to pain. The body is so Susceptible to discomfort, disease, pain. That we learn this early, early, early in life. And we construct our life around avoiding discomfort, avoiding pain. So much of our life is due to the fear of discomfort, fear of pain in the body. Some of us have reached the age where we notice the loss of our faculties. (laughs) I won't say which ones. We each have our own. (laughs) Nevertheless, it's hard not to think that I'm losing something when the body's capacities abandon us. So much of what we do to take care of the body, to feed it, to nurture it, to care for it, is actually quite burdensome. It's kind of oppressive. We just have to take care of it. You can't neglect it. You can't, you can't say, to heck with it, I'm not going to bathe or brush my teeth or change my clothes. Forget it. The body can take care of itself. then we get to see what suffering really like and so we're we're saddled with this body this identification with this body this this sense of the body is me which brings this suffering this wrong view of body is accompanied by what is called in the buddha's understanding hirika and Anotapa, meaning, basically, we'll do anything we can to get what we want. It might be uh, unwise. In fact, we see through our own addictive habits, sometimes we act in a way that is actually harmful to the body. Nevertheless, we want that experience and we're willing to do it it might be illegal, it could certainly be immoral, and it could be unhealthy. Nevertheless, because we're so identified with this body, we want it to not experience, or or let's say, experience as little pain and discomfort as possible. We'll do whatever we can to get the pleasure that we think should be ours. And in the process, we cause ourselves and others, a tremendous amount of suffering. This wrong view of the body is very, very powerful. We're almost, we could say, victimized by it, victimized by our attachment, our misunderstanding. I am the body. The Buddha said, of the body, he said, the entire, and I'm paraphrasing, the entire universe is to be found in this body. Whatever you can experience anywhere in this universe will be found in the body. We don't have to go anywhere. On the face of the earth or to any other realm, whatever you will discover, pleasure and pain is to be found in this body. And if we sit and pay attention, we'll discover that. Practice is something like a 3D mapping of the body. To begin to come out from under this mistaken belief, we must pay attention to the body as it really is, as we can experience it, not just how we see it in the mirror, not just how we read it in the statistics, but how we actually experience it. And in that direct experience of the body, to apply the Buddha's instruction, see this as not me, not mine, not who I am. Buddha didn't say, Wait until you get fully enlightened and understand it's not me, not mine, not who I am. He said, when you feel the body, pleasant or unpleasant, understand it as not me, not mine, not who I am. It's important that we distinguish between an unskillful identification with the body and respectful attention to the body. Because we have a body. There is a body here. We can create a lot of unnecessary suffering by neglecting it. And so we do the metta practice, one phrase of which is, may I be healthy, may I be strong, may I be free of pain, physical pain, suffering. So that we have this respectful attitude to the body. We take the precepts, or we... We eat mindfully in order to minimize the distress of eating carelessly. Nevertheless, attachment to and identification with the body creeps in. For myself, for many years, for as long as I can remember, from high school on, I've had some sort of distress in the abdomen. And, you know, I did a lot of self-medicating to keep the discomfort at bay. And I've also gone to see every kind of medical practitioner you can imagine. From allopathics who said no ulcer, just take Tums. To chiropractors who said you need an adjustment and promptly administered it. To, To acupuncturists who said oh, your liver meridian's out of whack. Here, let me give you a couple of needles and bring it back. Burmese doctors who said oh your nerves and your legs are not quite right let me massage them excruciatingly <laughs> to <laughs> to finally I went to one who works with crystals and she said here lay down let me put a couple of crystals on you I'll get this straightened out right away <laughs> nevertheless I still had the distress so I talked to Upandita about it he said did you think of noting it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Hey. This was after months of recording in minute detail everything I ate, how much I ate, and when I went to the toilet. (laughs) Trying to scientifically figure out why this was happening the way it was. Really, all I wanted to do was be free of suffering. And by paying attention to just acknowledge, Oh, aching, burning, tightness, bubbling, stretching, pressure, pulling. It's just sensations. Unpleasant, but not suffering. Mindfulness is the medicine to end suffering. Physical suffering, mental suffering, suffering, any suffering that's attached to the body, identified with the body. Gradually in practice, we get a clearer picture of the body. And we see, really, what is going on here inside the body. The elemental nature of it. And it's only through experiencing the body in its elemental nature. Experiences tightness, tingling, pressure, hardness, stretching, throbbing, pulsing, you know. It's only with this level of experience, if you will, that we can disentangle our identification with the body in its form, in its appearance, in its behavior, in its statistics, easy to get identified with the body. But when you're observing the body at the molecular, the cellular, the atomic, and even subtler levels, how do you identify with the atomic fluttering that makes up the body? Not me, not mine, not who I am. Easy to see when the mindfulness is that penetrating. Impossible to see when we're looking in the mirror. We have a couple of Dharma practices that help to loosen the glue of our identification with the body. We have a practices that I mentioned, where we minimize attachment to our own body and attachment to other people's bodies we also have reflection on death to bring into view the understanding that this body must die is not to neglect not to deny not to be afraid of but just to recognize this body must die and to use that knowledge about the body to enhance our practice to encourage our practice One time I was practicing in Burma, and after several months of practice, I was feeling very steady, very continuous in practice. The body was so light. Not light like visual light, but light like no gravity. And it was so transparent, and it was so mist-like, that I I, I had the experience continuously, or not quite continuously, but many times throughout the day of feeling completely naked. I was in robes, I had my robes on, and I'd be walking to meals or the meditation hall, and I would feel naked. I'd have to look to make sure. (laughs) You know, I got my robes on, okay, keep going. So I went to my teacher at that time, Sayuru Lakana, and I told him what I was experiencing, how light the body was, how. Ephemeral it was. How it just, just like mist. It just felt like it was evaporating. There was nothing anymore solid. I couldn't feel my robes on me. I felt naked. He said, "Now you know what it's like when you just came out of your mother's womb. Before there was identification with the body, we learn to be identified with the body. We grow up learning how to identify with this body. Our practice is to." dissolve that glue, to disidentify, to learn to experience the body as not me, not mine, not who I am. A second way that we experience wrong view, create a sense of self, is by creating a personal history. Now, I don't know some of you at all. But if I asked you, oh, who are you? You would probably start with, well, something from your past. I've done this, I've been there, I've grown up here, I've studied this, I've met so and so, and I've done this, and I've done that. All from the past. Giving me a glimpse, or a snapshot, into your personal history. And this personal history is how you want to present yourself me. How you see yourself. The identity that you have created out of the memories that you preserve about yourself. In some ways, we feel, I am the accumulation of what I remember. What I remember about myself is who I am. Now, that can happen in both the uh, a welcome, uh, positive sense of self, those pleasant memories that we remember, and it can also sometimes happen with the unpleasant, unwelcome memories that we inevitably get saddled with. Nevertheless, so much of our sense of ourselves is conditioned by how we remember our personal history. We also like to see other people and often identify others by their personal history, what we remember about them. You know, we, here in practice, we sometimes get these uh, personal history review, I call it, and we start to recall events from our life from long ago, years ago sometimes, that we haven't remembered. 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years. I can't remember lunch yesterday, but I can remember 30 years ago. Somebody said to me, N-n-n-n-n-n-n. what did that do to my sense of self? Have I been carrying that around for 30 years? Have we been carrying around what our parents said to us for 30, 40, 50 years as who we are? Is that the foundation of who we are? For some of us, that's where it all started. And experiences since that time have served to confirm it. So much of our wrong understanding of memories is due to the attachment we have to the sense of self created by Remembering them. And you know, we just go over and over and over again. Some memories, painful or pleasant, as affirming who I am, how I see myself. This is wrong view. This is not the right way of understanding memories. We have a memory, and we think, Oh, that's me. That's my memory. That's who I am, or that's who I was then. The Buddha said, when you have a memory, see it as not me, not mine, not who I am. Counterintuitive, isn't it? It feels so real. I really am. It really is my memory. In a relative sense, of course it is. But in an absolute sense, in a momentary experience, what makes it yours is attachment. Wrong view is always accompanied by attachment. The wrong view of self, always accompanied by attachment. Now, the suffering that comes with Identifying with our memories is phenomenal. Unbelievable amount of suffering. Remember the most shameful thing you ever did? We try not to, don't we? We try to keep it out of our consciousness. Because it's a skeleton in the closet. Now, how much energy do you think it's taken since you did that to keep it out of your consciousness. No wonder we're so tired. We've been trying to keep out all this memories that don't serve our sense of self or that contradict the self that we want to present to the world. A lot of pain there. A lot of fear of even remembering clearly what we've done. Sometimes we're badgered by painful memories, what others have said to us, how others have treated us. They erupt into our perfect life, causing us unhappiness. And the story we tell ourselves about that painful experience, victimized by that other person's carelessness, only serves to reinforce the wrong view of self the wrong view of who I am. If we take it to be my experience, my memory, it's mine. You can't help but suffer. It's only by developing mindfulness, by seeing memory as memory. That's all. And a memory is a set of conditions that existed in the past, and when it arises, it exists in the present momentarily. We don't have to make a self out of it. We don't have to make an identity out of it. We just have to see it as a memory is a memory. Not me, not mine, not who I am. I'm sure you've heard a talk on mindfulness this retreat, in which someone probably said, the function of mindfulness is to remember. To remember. That's what mindfulness... That's the job of mindfulness, is to remember. And in part, it's to recover all those memories that we've suppressed, repressed, expressed, so that we can finally see them and let them go. Because only by seeing them, only by uncovering them, can we locate the source of our identity and see that that which conditioned the identity has passed. But we don't need to hang on to it anymore. We don't need to be attached to it. As long as we have unrecovered memories, we have attachment. How we think of ourselves based on our memories is a limitation we have a sense of ourselves i need this i can do this i can't do that i like to use the the the, uh, the idea of sleep many of us believe we know how many hours of sleep we need because we've always needed 5 hours 6 hours 8 hours 10 hours whatever your understanding is whatever your misunderstanding is we have an understanding about ourselves it's just An understanding, a belief, a thought that we have about ourselves, based on what we remember. In practice, we get the opportunity to challenge that misbelief. Not only about sleep, but about everything else about us. Whatever you believe about yourself, based on how you have experienced it or not experienced it in the past, It's just a wrong view. None of it is true. If it's resting on something we experienced in the past and we recall the memory of it. But until we see our identification with that self conditioned or constituted or constellated by those conditions, then we're limited by it. Mindfulness practice is to see the limitation, to see, to feel that sense of ourself that's conditioned by it, and to go beyond it, to let it go, to see that it is dissolved, that it has gone already, and we're no longer limited by it. We're no longer caught in that limited sense of ourself. When we sit down to practice mindfulness, we give ourselves the instruction, okay, please be mindful. I give myself the instruction, be mindful. And I promptly forget. And I space out and wander around and who forgot? Who forgot? Me? I tried to remember. If I think that I'm responsible for remembering, I'm going to suffer. Because right? when we think, why can't I be more mindful? I'm trying to be more mindful. You know, and then we space out. If we think that we are our memory, or how we remember is really a reflection of us, we're going to dislike ourselves. We're going to rate ourselves as pretty poor. We're going to assess our practice as being ineffective. Because there's nobody in the room that can remember to be mindful. All the time. Why? Because we're not our memories. We don't have control over our memory. We can't make it happen. We can't make it not happen. So you're caught in a space out. You've been wandering in thought. Some nice fantasy couple of minutes or a couple of hours, whatever your practice is, a <laughs> couple of days, a couple of years. I mean, you know, so you're caught. At some point, you come out of it, and the memory of practice is there. Who remembered? You didn't remember. You were totally spaced out. But the memory of mindfulness or memory of practice was there. Who did that? Don't take pride in that, you didn't do it. <laughs> <coughs> memory or remembering is, is not me, It's not mine, is not who I am. Whether it's there or not, it's not me, not mine, not who I am. How are we going to understand memory free of identity? When we can, we're free. This is the path. This is the direction that practice takes us to not get caught and limited by how we remember ourselves. So we can't remember last week. We often can't remember things from early in our life. Practice takes us in another direction. There was one time in practice, I was in, in Burma, and I'd been practicing for some time, and my practice was at a place where experience was very clear. Each object that I was experienced moment by moment was discrete, uh, tangible, noticeable, recognizable, and I felt like practice was going good. And then as practice goes... Uh, it changed. And I had the experience that practice wasn't going good. And I couldn't see anything. I couldn't note anything. I couldn't keep continuous from one moment to the next. It was as if I forgot after each moment what I was doing. I'd forget, I'd remember, or I'd try again, and I would promptly forget. What am I doing here? And I... (laughs) I'd note something, and I'd forget. Now, what do I do now? And it was continual forgetting. It was so frustrating. It was unbelievable. I was so upset with my practice. My confidence was headed to down. So I went to Upandita, and I said, my practice is shot. I don't know what's happening. I can't notice anything. I have to struggle to pay attention. I forget in every moment what I'm doing. That was my understanding, I should say that was my misunderstanding of what was going on. And I assessed my practice not so good. Upandita explained to me, he said, on the contrary. He said, what's actually happening is your mindfulness is getting so good that you're not even remembering the last moment of mindfulness. In fact, what you're seeing is there's no one being mindful. So who's being mindful? No one's being mindful. When you don't remember from one moment to the next, who is it that's not remembering? There's no one that goes from one moment to the next. There's no one to remember in this moment that there was a mindful moment just before it. Radical. (laughs) This This is a radical understanding. This is the way it is, though. If we see that and we don't get it explained to us by someone who knows, we won't believe it. But once it's explained and you see, oh, this is what's happening. Mindfulness is remembering in each moment. It's not bothering to remember the past moment, whether it was mindful or not, it's only remembering this moment. Then you see how insubstantial, how discontinuous. You see, there really is no one here to be mindful or to be unmindful. It's just conditions unfolding. Don Juan, taught Carlos, he said, a spiritual warrior doesn't need a personal history. One day he or she finds it no longer necessary and just drops it. The art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being with the wonder of being. When we see the terror of no self to be mindful... No self to be unmindful. It's terrorizing. Terrifying. terrifying. Nevertheless, it's wonderful. Because it opens up the possibility of being present in each moment for the way it is. Without any memory of how it used to be or any plan of how we'd like it to be. But just, this is the way it is in each moment. So we have the body that we get identified with, we have our personal history that we get identified with. We also get identified with what I like to call, what would you say, the one who's in control. Being the one who's in control. Now, in a relative sense, and in the relative world, we make decisions. And we get to live the result of those decisions, more or less. But what we don't see, or what is a little bit obscured by this decision-making, is it seems to point to someone who's there making the decision. Now, in a relative sense, yes. I'm making the decision to be here. You all made the decision to do this retreat. I think. Maybe you had your partner make the decision for you. Nevertheless, you're here. Okay. Now we get to look a little closer. Who's making the decisions throughout the day? You know, you get up, you go to sit, you go to walk, you go to eat, you go to the toilet, you do this, you do that. You know, who's making all those decisions? I hope you've noticed how much of our life is spent on automatic pilot. Right? The body just goes through its things. The mind goes through its habits. And we live on automatic pilot. We don't even have to be here. Much of the time. The body will survive quite well. Thank you. And we see this. Of course, we sit down and we try to pay attention. And we see how much of the time we're not present. The body's doing okay. It's getting by. The mind is doing relatively okay. It's getting by. We're just not there. So we have to ask, who's in control? Who's the automatic pilot in this uh, process? Now, let me just step back. We are responsible for our actions. Each one of us is responsible to act with care, respect, consideration, because we know who's going to get the result if you have any understanding of the law of karma, you want to be responsible. And in a relative sense, we are responsible. Because sure enough, we'll get the result of our actions. If we speak and act carelessly, we can be sure it's going to be painful. If we're very careful and very considerate and respectful to ourselves and others, the result is more likely to be pleasant. Now, What happens when we get identified with being or as being the one who's in control? Well, first of all, things don't go the way we want them to. We may make a decision, but that decision requires so many supportive conditions to bring it about, to bring about the result that we don't control. We can't make it happen we're always vulnerable to changing conditions. And this is the feeling that we most experience as the insight into anatta is deepening, feeling vulnerable, feeling like we're just not in control. Not that we're not responsible, we are, but nevertheless, we're not in control. When we feel overly responsible for conditions outside of our own mind, This is being identified with being the one who wants to be or tries to be in control. When we're unable to tell the body be at ease, be healthy, be relaxed, don't be in pain. Does the body listen? Not very much. We don't have any control over the body. We have less control over the mind. Can you tell your mind? Please don't think those thoughts. You can tell the mind that. Does it obey? Not so much. We really don't have much control over our mind, over our body. Nevertheless, we're responsible for what the body does. Sometimes we even make choices against our own self-interest. We choose to do that which causes more suffering, pain, confusion, bewilderment. So, the question that we've all faced at one point or another in this retreat, as we've been sitting and pain is approaching the intolerable level, are we going to move or not? Are we going to shift our posture, or are we going to endure to the bell? And so the great debate begins I can make it. <laughs> this is the voice of determination saying, yes, I'm going to sit still for the whole hour. And then fear arises and says, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is getting pretty painful. I don't think you're ever going to be able to walk again if you sit till the bell. Doubt arises and says, why should I be bothering to observe this pain anyway? What's wrong with moving? Attachment says, oh, yeah. I want, I want to be free, but I also want to be able to walk. <laughs> Compassion says, oh, be kind to yourself. Move now. <laughs> At some point, we move. Who decided? We have all these conflicting desires, aspirations, understandings, misunderstandings. Which one are you going to identify with? The body conditions the mind. When the body is painful, the mind is con- made to go through this kind of consideration, reflection. And the mind considers the body or conditions the body. How we notice or not notice the mind, what's going on in the mind, the body will either move or sit still. The body and mind are conditioning each other in every moment. So, who's making the decision? It doesn't make sense, does it? If you just sit back and say, Oh, I, I made the decision to move. Well, you're not looking very close. Because the decision to move, just as every other decision in this process, is conditioned by other impersonal events. Impersonal mental states that arise, impersonal sensations that arise in the body. And so when we see the opportunity for making a decision, the Buddha said, consider it like this. Not me, not mine, not who I am. When we consider that we've just made a decision, consider it like this. Not me, not mine, not who I am. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? It doesn't seem that way, experientially. But this is the way those who have taken this practice to the end, have seen is the way to the end of suffering. And so in that sense we would say this is the right view for achieving the end of suffering. Not me, not mine, not who I am. One last experience that I want to talk about as manifestation of wrong view causing a lot of suffering, unnecessary suffering I should say. Mindfulness relieves us of it we have this narrator inside our head. And it's the narrator of our life. It's the internal monologue. It's been going on since we were born. It has endless amounts of energy. No matter what is going on, it can weave it into the story of me. What I'm doing, how I feel, what I want, what I've done. The continuity of the voice of the narrator is fabulous whatever comes into view the narrator co-ops so here I am a yogi on retreat at IMS been here for two months or three weeks how am I doing assessing my own practice Hmm, pretty good today mm, not as good as yesterday mm, rehearsing for my next interview I wonder what I'm going to say gee hmm okay wonder what's for lunch planning what to do at the end of the retreat coming up soon brought to uh, brought to you courtesy of december 13th okay so we have this narrator going on in our mind endlessly repeating to ourselves who we are what we're doing giving ourselves this talk as if we're trying to tell somebody what's actually going on okay it's true. Now, I don't know about you, but my narrator drives me crazy. <laughs> sometimes And sometimes my narrator gets fearful. sometimes it gets kind of anxious, it gets fretful, it gets self-conscious. Every time I have to give a talk up here, oh, there's that period of time oh. self-consciousness. or at least that's what it felt like initially until I realized, that's how much energy is needed, just to give a talk. And then, oh no, am I gonna get any notes? (laughs) Praise and blame, praise and blame. And the narrator's anticipating. The narrator can drive us crazy. All unnecessary suffering. Mindfulness is to see through the narration. To see that this narration is just composed of little bits and pieces of information, little pixels of experience a sight, a sound, a thought, a sensation, a memory, a plan, a pleasant and unpleasant. And it weaves this story into me out of all those little pixels of experience. Mindfulness is to see the pixels. because in the pixels, there's no story. There's no narrator. There's no identity. There's no suffering. The narrator is the cause of the suffering. If you see the narrator, in an old uh, take on, if you see the Buddha, if you see the narrator, kill him. (laughs) But we kill him by noticing him. Just notice. Oh, narrating, narrating. That's all that's happening. We're telling ourselves a story that isn't even true and we're suffering because of it. If we believe the story we're telling ourselves, wrong view. The Buddha said, you know the story you tell yourself? See it as not me, not mine, not who I am. Counterintuitive, isn't it? This is the instruction of the Buddha. How to practice effectively. How to get the benefit of your practice. We can practice wrongly. We can struggle to be mindful and just create more self. Oh, I'm not doing so good. If you listen to that narrator, more suffering. However, if you hear that narrator and say, oh, not me, not mine, <laughs> not who I am, just narrating's happening. Less suffering. So now my famous United Airlines frequent flyer story. One time I had to fly from Bo- from San Francisco to Boston. And due to a change in plans, I had to leave a day early. So I called up the airlines and I said, you got any flights that I can fly standby to Boston? They said, oh yeah, sure. Two thirds empty tonight, red eye, coming out of San Francisco. I said, all right, I'll take it. So I got to the airport. It was a madhouse. I said, what happened? I got to the counter and I said, what happened? I thought this plane was empty. And they said, oh, no, we had two flights canceled. They're all going on, the flight to Boston. I said, oh, no, I wanted to fly standby. They said, not a chance. said, this plane is overbooked already. I said, I'm a frequent flyer. If there's an empty seat, can I have it? They said, sure, but there won't be any. I went to the gate. I went up to the counter and I said, I'm flying standby. If there's an empty seat... I'd like to have it. I'm a frequent flyer. Not only that, I'm a premier. I'm a premier executive. Okay. Just so you know. So, (laughs) they got the plane full. They tried to load everybody on the plane. They want to leave the gate on time. And they said, you three people who want to fly standby, come with me down to the door of the plane. If we see that there's any empty seats, we'll let you in. I said, I'm a frequent flyer. (laughs) So, we got to the plane door. They settled everybody down. and They said, ah, lucky for you, one seat way up there. I said, great. I'm in. I'm on the plane. So I go to sit down, and here I am, squeezed in the middle seat between two giant football players. (laughs) But I said, that's okay. I'm going to get there on time. So I sat down, kind of trying to stow my stuff, squashed between the two. But I was happy. Then I saw, oh, they found another empty seat, and they took the second person who was waiting to fly standby, they said, you can sit there. Close the door, all ready to fly. You know, they're giving the instructions and all that. Before they back away from the gate, somebody in first class decides they're on the wrong plane. (laughs) They get up, they open the door, they let them out. They called in the third person who was waiting to fly (laughs) standby. So in walks this young kid, probably been living on the beach, everything he owned in one knapsack, they put him in first class. I'm the frequent flyer, <laughs> I should get the first class seat, ring the bell, ding, ding, ding. ding. <laughs> so I said to this uh, flight flight person, uh, <clears throat> I saw that you had an empty seat in first class, sit down, you're on the plane, we've got to leave on time. So I was not happy. <sighs> My narrator was telling me, I'm the frequent flyer. I should, have that. <laughs> I should have that first class seat. Come on, why can't I have it? Ring the bell. No, don't ring the bell. You already... Was I suffering? So for the first half hour of the flight, I composed in my mind the letter of all the details <laughs> to the, Red, to the <laughs> United Airlines, how angry I was at them for not honoring and valuing me as a fr- premier executive frequent flyer. <laughs> And I took a look and I said, let's practice some mindfulness here. (coughs) (laughs) What's going on? I'm on the plane, suffering. Hmm. How can I suffer less? See the narrator. It's just a story you're telling yourself. Let it go. Oh, it's just a story. I'm on the plane. I'm going to get there. What's the problem? Oh, okay. Let that one go. Got to Boston, fine, no problem. Didn't even write the letter. Now, what happened? When you see the narrator, what happened? You stop suffering. Everything else is the same. Your life goes on quite well. You just stop suffering. Whatever you've been doing, you keep doing, except you don't tell yourself the story over and over and over again. This is the way we disentangle ourselves from the story, through mindfulness practice. So much of our suffering, my personal history, my body, my choice, my inner monologue, unnecessary suffering. Only because we don't see it. All the events of our lives, the joys, the sorrows, the successes, the failures, the pleasant, the unpleasant the memories, the plans, they all revolve around me. All that suffering. The Buddha taught us to see these events as not me, not mine, not who I am. And when we practice in this way, we can see the end of suffering. We will come to realize for ourselves the peace that comes at the end of suffering. Not me, not mine, not who I am. So let's sit for a few moments. Don Juan taught Carlos Castaneda. The way to stop the inner dialogue is to use exactly the same method that was used to teach us, to talk to ourselves. We were taught compulsively and unwaveringly, and this is the way we must stop it, compulsively and unwaveringly. Once inner silence is attained, everything is possible. Thank you for listening to Dhamma.